Good evening. My name is Belinda, and tonight I am carrying on with our When Jesus Met series. So this summer we've been looking at when Jesus has encounters with people here on earth. And tonight we're going to meet Jesus when he spent some time teaching on Jewish laws. He's just come away from seeing some um, Jewish people telling them about clean and unclean and breaking rules and all sorts like that. And we see that he's actually seeking some time by himself, which, spoiler alert, gets interrupted. What a surprise. Hence the name of the series, When Jesus Met. So the passage I'm going to look at tonight is in the book of Mark, chapter 7, verse 24. So the words will be on the screen behind me. Feel free to follow along. And let's see what happens when Jesus meets the Syrophoenician woman. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon had gone. So our story begins here with Jesus heading to the area of Tyre and Sidon, probably to relax after an overwhelming few days of crowds and questions and ministry. I mean, if you flick back, if you've got a Bible with you, just one page. It says he's fed 5,000 with just a few loaves and fish. He's walked on water. He's healed the sick. He's schooled some Pharisees. I'm sure if anyone deserves a rest and a bit of a break, it's going to be Jesus at this point. But Tyre and Sidon aren't well-known holiday destination points. They're not the place with the best gelato or like crystal clear waters and sandy beaches. In fact, it's actually a Gentile area, an area where Gentile people live, people who don't believe in God but instead in gods or idols who have actually quite a disdain towards the Jewish people. In fact, Jewish rabbis instructed any Jewish travelers to go right around the region, even if it doubled the time of their traveling, because there was so much friction between the Gentile and the Jew. And it seems Jesus isn't only poor at picking holiday destination points, but is also pretty pants at hide-and-seek. Every time we come across Jesus and when he wants to find some time by himself, he seems to be found. I wonder if he's just a really heavy breather. You know, he's trying to hide behind a sofa and you can just hear him like... <gasps> or he's one of those people that always behind, like, hides behind one of those big curtains but his feet stick out and you're like, I can see you, Jesus, every time. Or maybe, just maybe, there's something about him that just can't be hidden. His fame has gone before him, even trickling into this Gentile area, a place that didn't know God, seeping through the streets of Tyre and Sidon, to be heard by one woman, one desperate woman, a desperate mother. Tucked away in this house, she finds him, and she falls to his feet. She is desperate for help as her daughter is unwell with an unclean spirit. Rather than be told her name in this text, we're told her nationality. She is a Syrophoenician, a huge word normally I completely bypass when reading the Bible, but in this case, it's important. All the gospel stories about this woman tell, her, tell us about her nationality because it's not to be missed. 
the author of this book, Mark, sets us up by telling us that she is a Gentile, a pagan, not Jewish. Because she's a Gentile, in the eyes of Jews, she is unclean. She doesn't know the rituals to approach Jesus. She doesn't know what to say or what to do to be clean before this Jewish rabbi, Jesus. She should be disqualified from this meeting based on her nationality alone. And then we factor in the fact that she is a woman in a society ruled by men. This conversation should not happen based on these two points. From the Jewish point of view, this Gentile woman with an unclean daughter is the ultimate outsider. In fact, some commentators say that this woman had the most stacked against her in terms of um, coming to Jesus in the whole gospel. Yet here she is. She's fully disqualified, fully undeserving in a lot of people's eyes of Jesus' help. But here she is. She has torn herself away from her daughter's bedside. Imagine how hard that must have been for her. She has run in the heat of the day through the back passages and the alleys of this area, searching in windows, in doors, looking for Jesus. And she finds him and she falls and begs. She doesn't just ask for once. No, she begs and she begs and she begs. She can't catch her breath. She is so desperate. Whatever her background, she has cast herself wholly on Jesus in her hour of need. Jesus responds in a different way than we might think he should. We've seen, though, across this summer series that Jesus' Jesus' responses are often unexpected, not what we would think he would do. And I can imagine this is certainly not what she expected in in her time of need. First, let the children eat all they want, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. I mean, what a response. Jesus is referring to the woman here as a dog. Some commentators have kind of said, oh, maybe it's a puppy, trying to soften the blow a bit, like, oh, she's a cute puppy, don't worry about it. Other commentators say, no, straight up dog, that's the word he is using. I mean, both are canines, it doesn't matter which side you're on, he is referring to her as a canine. Why? Well, that's the way Jews actually refer to Gentiles in these times. Now, I'm a cat person, through and through, ask anyone that knows me, cats till I die. But I am quite partial to a cute pooch. I am that person that on a walk will cross over the path to make sure I can stroke a dog. Or the probably really annoying person that always addresses the dog before the owner. And I have often got lost in that dangerous area of YouTube, watching military men and women come home to be reunited with their dogs and like weeping over my laptop. I love dogs. I mean, they're man's best friend. Cats are first, obviously. But they are man's second best friend. They are loyal. They are lovely. Very few people don't like dogs. But that is not the case when this story was written. They were mangy. They lived on the streets. They didn't come into the house. I imagine they were covered in fleas and ticks and all sorts of pests and parasites. And they snuffled up all your leftover food on the floor. So was Jesus outright insulting our Syrophoenician woman here. Well, no, not at all. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. That's not what Jesus does. That that isn't who our Jesus is. But he's using a parable here, a really stark but contextual metaphor that was completely in the culture at the time to get her to think, to invite a response, and to get her to realize the situation she's in. And what is that situation? Well, Jesus, in this kind of strange response, is basically letting her know that he is here for his mission. His mission is to reach first the Jews, 
the ones who already know God, fulfilling the laws and the prophecies that were already spoken before he came. And then after that, to go to the ones that didn't know God, the Gentiles, after the cross and the resurrection. So through this weird response, he's effectively telling the woman that as a Gentile, it just isn't her time yet. He must first feed his children, the Jews, and then there will be hope and a plan for her too, just not yet. And can you put yourself in this woman's shoes, sandals, whatever footwear they wore in those times? Looking up at this man, she has heard so many miraculous stories about. She's heard that he's healed sick people. She's heard that he might even have walked on water, knowing he is our only hope. And to be told in this really weird way, no. I'm sure I'd have a few things that I'd want to say back if someone referred to me in that way. You might sort of think of a few too if someone gave you an answer like that. But her response certainly would not be mine, but is something else. She says, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She enters into Jesus' parable here, something that hasn't been seen before in the gospel. She meets Jesus inside his story. She acknowledges his metaphor acknowledges his description of her and accepts the somewhat humiliating position of being a dog, of having no right to ask for anything, her position as a Gentile. There is no, how dare you, no cry of injustice, but okay, that's true, but I've still got to eat. Can I, can I just eat that? She doesn't sulk off. She doesn't shut down but she engages with Jesus, showing an understanding of who he is and therefore who she is. Her humility in accepting an undeserving position as a Gentile and her faith of Jesus' overflowing grace, I think is really something special. She gets there's an order. She gets there's a plan. She knows after the cross that Jesus has said to her, there will be a plan for you. But she just wants in early. She sees indeed that crumbs do fall from his table because he is so rich in his mercy and grace that there is an overflow. She sees that he is majesty, calling him Lord, and she wants in. Her question to him is, can we just eat together? In one sentence, she gets Jesus. Commentators note she is the first to enter into a parable like this and meet Jesus inside his story, understanding it unlike all of the confused Jews and like head-scratching disciples we've seen before when Jesus talks to them like this. I mean, she understands Israel's Messiah more than Israel does itself. She doesn't stand on rank or on privilege, knowing she has no entitlement to accept anything, but she's willing to take just the crumbs, the little crumbs that fall unnoticed from the table. The five-second rule doesn't even apply to them. In such simple terms, she expresses the way that we should come to God. She understands her need for him, her humble position. She understands that she doesn't deserve to ask for anything at all. Yet she knows that he is Lord, and a simple tiny crumb can more than satisfy her. But to be honest, everything in me when I read this was like, hold up, Jesus, she deserves this. What do you mean she doesn't even deserve a, like, to eat? Surely she deserves more than a crumb. Surely. Then I thought a bit about that, about this 
I deserve this, or you deserve that phrase that we hear so often. I mean, you think back to primary school. You do well in a test, gold sticker. You deserve that. When I've gone to the gym and get home and eat a tub of ice cream, I deserve this. When I've seen a nice pair of boots, so I do a bit of overtime at work, try them on, clack around, and think, oh, I deserve these. These are great. We get told so often we deserve things, and actually we start to think we do, regardless of our character, regardless of our merit. I feel like I deserve quite a lot. I mean, some of you know I used to want to be a vet, which takes a whole heap of work. So from the age of about 13, 14, I、um, gave up all my holidays to doing work experience. So there were 4 a.m. milking sessions during half terms, mopping up the floor in vet surgeries during Christmas,、um, Easter building fences and working on a sheep farm. On my 18th birthday, I had a wild night with diet coke and chemistry A-level revision. I worked hard. I got good grades. I did all the work experience. My teacher said, "Belinda, you deserve to be a vet." My parents said, "You really deserve this. You have worked hard." I'm not a vet. I didn't get it, and I feel like for a while I felt a real entitlement, a real "I deserve to get this. I have put in the work, therefore I deserve it." I mean, I'm a teacher now, so I work with teenagers, so it's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> But our culture and our society. Tell us we deserve everything, regardless of our morals, our character, or our merits. If we want it and we work towards it, it's ours. We deserve it. And we think about this story here. When we put ourselves in as the Syrophoenician woman, it's really easy to think, "Hold up, surely I deserve more than a crumb." Maybe we look at this woman who happily says, "Yes, Jesus, I don't deserve it. Let me just have a tiny bit, a tiny morsel." And we're like, oh yeah, I'm amening along with her. I'm completely with her. But in our heads, we're thinking, actually, I do think, I think I deserve a little bit. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm, I think I'm actually doing pretty well. I know I'm not perfect, but on a scale of one to ten, I'm probably about a six. Seven on a good day, both round up to a ten. I think I'm doing all right. I think I deserve more than a crumb, surely, and a mouche bouche, an appetizer, a starter, something a bit more. But we forget one thing. Society likes us to think that we're comparing ourselves to those around us, to people. But we're not. It's easy to compare yourself to that housemate we've probably all had who nicks your milk, or that friend in your like group who's a little bit of a gossip. They're only five out of tens. We're a six, seven. I mean, eight if we're if we're being modest. But what if we change the scale? I think I'm quite good at running. I think I could probably outrun, outrun Chris. Factor in Usain Bolt. Don't think I could outrun him, and he's retired. If I <laughs> if I up my scale from our morality scale even further, up and up and up into the billions, the trillions, numbers that we don't even know exist, I then find an all-knowing, an all-powerful, and an all-perfect God. How do we compare now? On my best day of being an eight out of ten, I am nothing compared to him. On my best day of being an eight, I am the absolute lower limit of that scale. Even if you know God was kind and brought the scale down to a hundred out of a hundred, my eight still is the absolute bottom. And that gap between us and God, our imperfection versus His complete perfection, is the reason that I don't deserve to have even a crumb from the floor. But do you know what? Sets us a place 
at his table. I mean, picture it with me. I think you walk into this room and there is a dark, beautiful wooden dining room table that just stretches and stretches on forever. And you can kind of start smelling your favorite dinner. Mine's my mum's roast dinner every time. Yours might be lasagna, chicken nuggets, whatever it might be, but you can smell it in the air. And you walk towards the table and you see there are individual place cards with your name on it in the most beautiful calligraphy possible because Jesus probably has the best handwriting. And then a bit like in that scene in that Harry Potter film, suddenly the table erupts full of food. Every food imaginable, anything you could possibly want is on that table. And there's Jesus pulling out a seat and beckoning you over. Because the times have changed. A single event in history has changed it all. The cross Rather than asking us to make up the difference, God went the distance on our scale. Jesus went to the cross, carrying our barriers, carrying our wrongdoings, carrying our undeservingness, which isn't a word, but I'm making it one. And he gave us a new status. He gave us a seat at his table, and he gave us a new name, child. Because as the child of God, Jesus came to earth, where he was treated like a dog killed on a cross, so that we, the dogs, can be given a new name, adopted and called child. The cross opens up Jesus' salvation to everyone. A verse later on in the Bible, in a book um, called Galatians, says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter whether we should technically qualify or not. All are welcome. Nobody is disqualified from coming to know him. Nobody is disqualified from becoming a child. Jesus made it possible for everyone to come now, no waiting, and be called his own. The Syrophoenician woman in our story understood the essential and overriding truth of the relationship between human and the living God. So she approached him for redemption, not based on who she is or what she'd done, solely based on him, saying, I've no right to ask. I know it's not my time, but I know that you are so, so good. We come with the attitude of the woman, knowing we are undeserving, well beyond our rights to ask for anything, but because of the time we're in now, because we are this side of the cross, the Galatians passage is true for us. We are made one in him and inherit all of his promises. As children, we are given a seat at his table, enjoying all he has to feed us with, the kingdom of God, love and mercy and hope and glory and promises and eternal life. The list goes on and on. Jesus showed the woman the glory of his kingdom, the goodness when he saw her heart, when he saw her faith. And he healed her daughter from this demon. He got rid of the demon from the other side of town when he wasn't even in the same room, which is a whole different ballgame. But it's completely nuts, isn't it? But we'll get to that another point. No matter what you do, once you've been called child, that is it. You are his child forevermore. Once you have been given a seat at his table, that seat is your rightful place, his plan for you. 
We still mess up. I still mess up. I definitely still fall short. Sometimes you just don't feel like you're doing well. You might have forgotten to read your Bible or pray. You might be joining in with that gossip in your friendship group. You might be the one who's nicking all the milk from the fridge. Sometimes you might just compare yourself to other Christians and think, oh, they're just, they're just doing so well. You know that Christian on Instagram who's just always posting inspirational things and just seems to be doing so well and think, hey, they should have my seat, surely. I'm, I'm not doing well at all compared to them. But that's not the case. It's easy to think we can get down from the table and eat crumbs in those moments, but that's not who we are. He has called us his children. Every time we get down from the table feeling guilty or that we're not, we shouldn't be there, Jesus picks us up, sits us in your rightful seat. No one else is just for you. He washes your hands of the worldly grime and he says, tuck in to this meal that I have prepared just for you. It's part of his perfect plan for you. Chris and the band, would you like to come up? So, tomorrow morning, when you wake up, know that he has lovingly prepared his breakfast already for you, full of grace and mercy. During the late morning, know that you can come to him and request lunch because he is overflowing with goodness. When you feel like you aren't doing that good a job, know that he's got his snack ready for you of guidance and help. I know that at dinner time, you can ask for seconds, you can ask for thirds, because he will never leave you hungry. As Tim Keller, a Christian author, put it, we don't say, I'm owed this, it's my right, but give me what I don't deserve on a basis of your goodness. Let's approach Jesus like our Syrophoenician woman, knowing what we don't deserve, trusting his power and authority, Believing he is who he says he is. So believing we are who he says we are. Children of God and welcomed at his table.